Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to finish Ephesians chapter 2 today. That's uh, exciting for me, knowing what's ahead and knowing what we've done that builds toward it. Ephesians chapter 2. And as we look at this text today, we're going to be looking specifically at the subject of life as God's residence. That's not a typo. Life as God's residence. And I trust that will make more sense as we get into the text. Let me read that for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. I've mentioned this to you in uh, recent months, but the older I get, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I appreciate the importance of ecclesiology. That's a big word for the doctrine of the church. Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring the very people that he's writing to in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. He left Timothy there after he went back on the road to accomplish his missionary passion and he said this, 1 Timothy 3, 14, I am writing these things to you, this is the reason for his writing in the letter, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, listen carefully, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. You know, this should interest us at several levels. First, this is the church at Ephesus that we're studying in the book of Ephesians. This is what Paul told Timothy to make sure they understood. Secondly, Paul identifies the church as a household, a place where people live together, which he also does in the passage we're studying this morning. And third, we're informed that the church is the, not a, the pillar and support of the truth. In other words, all doctrines are really connected by the stewardship a church has to teach and hold sacred and hold secure the doctrines of Scripture. In a very real sense, all other doctrines in the church are regulated by the church's handling of the truth. We just read the mission statement of our church a few minutes ago and how it climaxes we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for His glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the Word of God. How do we submit ourselves to be regulated by the Word of God? Well, one of the extensions of the doctrine that regulates and binds us is being a part of a local church. So we're not theological mavericks or renegades. We have accountability to what we know and what we believe. And frankly, that's why our church has a robust 
doctrinal statement. And we're committed to expository preaching, unpacking God's word, one passage and one verse at a time, and teaching people from the cradle to the grave what God says and why it matters. But tucked away in that verse to Timothy, and in the passage before us, is the idea, the concept, and the reality that the church is made up of unique relationships for a unique purpose. At the end of verse 22 of the passage we're studying, Ephesians chapter 2, 22, we are actually called, drumroll, the dwelling of God. Let that sink in a moment. We are the dwelling of God. If you're like me, you look in the mirror and say, what? How does that work? Paul will take the imagery of the Jewish Gentile, rather the Jewish temple that they had in Jerusalem and instruct us that as a new humanity, Jew and Gentile come together, no matter who you are, from what background, join together with others in the church, Jews and Gentiles, anyone from any background, we are a new dwelling that constitutes a temple of God. Hence the title of living as God's residence. Not at God's residence, but living as God's residence. That's what we're called to do and be. Strange as this sounds, our text will help us understand this reality. And so we're going to dive into it. This is just swelling with beauty and with implications for us. As we dive into these four verses, we're going to look at two united experiences as God's new residence. Now, united experience, I mean by Jew and Gentile, no matter who you are with whoever doesn't um, match your background, you can put that together. Two united with everyone in the pews around you, everyone in, in your church, two united experiences as God's new dwelling place, his residence. And the first is what Paul has hinted at and, and kind of chomped around, and now he dives right into in verse 19, and that's surprising congeniality. Unbelievably surprising and unexpected relationships. The first united experience as God's new residence is we experience surprising congeniality. What that means is we get along with people we wouldn't have expected to. Verse 19. So then, so then it picks up on his idea of Jews and Gentiles being in the same fellowship, in the same church, um, worshiping the same God through the same Savior. So then you, now the you there is very important because the you are the Gentiles who've come to Christ. He's been talking about them in the previous passage. So you, and we know that's the case because you who are no longer strangers and aliens. And he described the Gentiles as strangers and aliens, strangers to the covenants of God, strangers to the blessings of God, strangers to temple worship, strangers to understanding the law, strangers to possessing the law. You were outside of God. And because of that, you had no experience and no hope with God in the world. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow 
citizens. With who? With your Jewish believing friends. With the saints. Anyone from any background and anywhere. And are the household of God. In verses 19 to 22, Paul uses actually three pictures, three illustrations. The genius illustrator that Paul is, he uses them intuitively as, as metaphors, as similes, two of them without explanation and one of them with great explanation. The first is in this passage in verse 18, verse 19 rather, are the first two. He says we're, 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 we're citizens of God's kingdom. So we're in God's kingdom with a new citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven and not just here. Secondly, he says we're a God's family living in the same household. That's in verse 19. And then in verses 20 to 22, he's going to talk about us being God's temple where God's presence dwells. Let's look first at verse 19. Paul stacks two illustrations here together, uses them almost synonymously to demonstrate the surprising congeniality, the relationships that we surprisingly have in Christ, in the church, between Jews and Gentiles then, and frankly, between you and anyone who's different than you for any reason now. He says, you're all saints, fellow citizens with the holy ones, the saints. That's any Christian who's put their faith in Christ. I love what he's doing here. He's reminding these Gentiles of who they were by saying that before their conversion, they were, used to be, strangers and aliens. We studied this in our last, our last study where they were strangers to the covenants. They were aliens to the blessing of God. They were without any hope and without God in the world. Verse 12 says, but he reminds them that they were strangers and aliens. Strangers, interesting word. It means short-term transients, non-residents with no rights. It reminds me of when I've traveled overseas. You, you have certain borrowed rights, but you don't have all the rights of the citizens who are in that country. Aliens is a similar term, but a little different. It refers to resident foreigners who've settled permanently in a country where they weren't born. And they have limited rights. But he uses both of them to say, you are way outside of blessing. But now these saved Gentiles enjoy all the privileges of God's kingdom and God's household. I think it's interesting that Paul does not expand on the citizenship, our, our kingdom metaphor. He just says, you're fellow citizens with the saints, all saints. But we do know that the kingdom which, of which the Jew and Gentile existed then, the kingdom which you and I exist in now as Christians, does not have physical and territorial dimensions, are you ready for this, yet. It will one day, but for now it doesn't. We don't have spatial territory. There isn't the Christian kingdom. And one of the great historical um, uh, misnomers and tragedies is when People have tried to theonomize the gospel. That's a big word for saying, if you're born in our kingdom, in our country, you're a Christian as opposed to anything else. Well, God doesn't work like that. He, he, he calls people to faith in him personally, not just because of their country of origin. Our kingdom doesn't have borders. John Stott so interesting. This is what he says. Think about this, especially in a lot of traveling in a foreign place. 
God's kingdom is God himself ruling his people and bestowing upon them all the privileges and responsibilities which his rule implies. And then he says this, we no longer live on a passport, but we really have our birth certificates. We really do belong, end quote. In other words, our, we're here on a passport. Our birth certificate and our citizenship is in heaven. God's kingdom is interracial, international. It knows no social segregation, no socioeconomic differences. knows no language barrier. And Paul uses these two illustrations of our heavenly citizenship, and also he has that being of the same family. He says we're in the same household, nearly synonymously. Every kingdom citizen is a family member with one another, and every other believer, rather, I should say, and every family member of the kingdom is a citizen with them as well. I think the apostle's aim here is that since God sees no distinction between his children who are believers, neither should we. We keep talking about this because it's so practical, but downstairs the children are probably singing in this hour, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. There's a great truth here. We're called into the household of God. He calls us family. Where does this come from? Do you recognize where this is anchored? Turn back over to Ephesians 1 verse 5. We looked at this text very intently from the standpoint of predestination and the theological implications of that, but I told you we're going to come back to that idea of adoption. Here it is. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. We have been predestined to be spiritual siblings with each other in the same household. And this, Paul could have said we're in the same family. He says that to the Corinthians. He uses that language. This is stronger. He says we're in the same household. We live in the same house, in the same room with each other. Not physically, but spiritually. That's how close we really are. Sharing the same house. <laughs> we'll see in a moment. And this is no ordinary duplex or apartment, no ordinary condo or house or mansion or estate. The house hold that you and I belong to is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God Almighty. That will make more sense in just a moment. Hence, we are to enjoy the congeniality of common citizenship and a close-knit family with each other. Can, can I just ask you personally and practically, do you approach your relationships here at Mission Road with such care and unity in your care groups? Are you involved in a care group? Are, are you, you one who says, well, I, I, I don't like care groups because I don't want to be that close to anybody. God says you're like flesh and blood with each other. You're going to spend the eternity with each other. You, you practice now doing that. 
Are the people around you as precious to you as your own flesh and blood? That's the illustration here. You are of the common household. Not just any household, because there's a leader of this house. What does it say? God's household. I think there are so many implications for how we love one another, treat one another, serve one another, view one another, care for one another, um, refrain from judging one another, recognize the judgment that's in our hearts toward one another. Because John 13 says, the lost and dying world will most know that we love God when we love and care for each other. It should be unusual, uncommon, supernatural, unexpected. Surprising congeniality. There's a second united experience as God's new residence, and this one has three parts. Divine inhabitation. And I just want to tell you, this: the more I read and studied this this week, I... I never got over being blown away by this reality. It is overwhelming what Paul says here. We are, as the church, the divine inhabitation and locus of God's presence. So let's break this down into three parts. First of all, believers are built on the foundation of New Testament revelation. What what makes us recipients of this divine inhabitation. Well, it's that we understand the gospel. Believers are built on the foundation of New Testament revelation. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, this is entering into, for the next three verses, he's going to be talking about architectural uh, uh, nomenclature. He's going to be talking about the, the parts of a house and the parts of a temple and the parts of a structure. And he begins where everyone begins when they build something, and that's with the foundation. There's been much debate, by the way, about what verse 20 means, but I think if we look at the details, it's not that hard to follow Paul's reasoning. First, Paul just spoke of us as a household, and in the coming two verses, he will add that we are being built into God's grand temple. So he says, you're the household of God. And then he almost spatializes that by saying it's actually the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. So the idea of an architectural foundation to begin with makes perfect sense. Any building you begin with, you start with the foundation and any builder will tell you if the foundation is off, you're in trouble. I've also been told that if your foundation was on and it gets off, you get in trouble. And my basement and its flooding proves that. Foundations are critical. What does he say here? The foundation or the beginning, the, the absolute bedrock of our structure as the body of Christ is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. See what he says there? What is this? In short, it's divine revelation that the Ephesian believers had learned about the gospel from the apostles and the prophets. This would become the New Testament in its written form. 
And the Greek grammar indicates that the apostles and prophets were not themselves the foundation, but providing the the foundation, the foundation of that belonged to the apostles and the prophets. Now, I make that point because the Catholic Church teaches that they were indeed the foundation. They weren't the foundation. They provided the foundation. Just like in Matthew 16, when Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you, I'm going to change your name. You are now Peter. You're the rock. And on you, I'll build my church. Not Peter himself. Peter's been dead a long time. But the foundational teaching and truth that Peter just said, which was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Same principle. Now, just a little forewarning. We're not going to take the deepest dive into apostles and prophets because we are going to do that. Turn the page in Ephesians 4. Because Paul says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, but he goes further. And some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. But for now, let's remember that they had an idea of prophet past and present. We're certainly familiar with the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Hosea, Obadiah, we could go on and on. But I think the context here is not referring to the Old Testament prophets, but the prophets that were alive during the New Testament era who were laying this foundation. What foundation is that? Can we... Can we sneak ahead just for a little bit? Because this will inform us what Paul's talking about. Chapter 3, verse 1. I need to read those first seven verses just so you get a little bit of context what he's talking about with this new revelation, these prophets. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation, look at that, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into, what are you talking about with the mystery? The mystery of Christ. That's the mystery. That's what the prophets and the apostles were talking about. So the New Testament prophets weren't just saying, I think you're going to have a good hair day. The New Testament prophets were saying, Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. They were connecting the Old Testament to Jesus. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it's been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. There it is. So the New Testament prophets were those who spoke of the mystery of Christ, meaning that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Old Testament anticipated Jewish Messiah. Now, just a little hint, we're going to come back to this in chapter 4, but I think the idea of modern-day prophets is completely beyond the bounds of this because the prophets in the New Testament era had an assignment. Tell about the mystery of Christ, the, the wonder of the gospel. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So my friends, and I have some who believe in modern day prophecy, I want to say, so I'm assuming that everything that your prophets say has to do with Jews and Gentiles existing in the same church and connects the New Testament to the Old Testament, right? Because that's what prophets do. 
We'll come back to these men in chapters 3 and 4, specifically in 4.11. For now, we just simply need to understand there were a group of men who provided understanding of the gospel and the new covenant as the fulfillment of the old. John MacArthur's words are helpful here. Their unique function was authoritative to authoritatively speak the word of God to the church in the years before the New Testament canon was complete. The fact that they are identified with the foundation reveals that they were limited to that formative period. And Acts 4.11 shows that their completed work, they completed their work and gave way to evangelists and pastors and teachers, end quote. So the office of apostle and prophet was temporary to this development of the New Testament era. There was no need for them once we had the canon and the writings of the New Testament. If you want to get specific, the New Testament gives pretty high criteria for being an apostle. They were required to have seen the risen Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 1, so that they could preach the resurrection from firsthand knowledge. They also had to be called and commissioned by the risen Lord directly and personally, John 20, verse 21, Acts 26, 15 to 18 say, which also meant that Paul received the gospel from Christ himself, and we know that from Galatians 1, 11 to 12. A prophet was someone who gave revelation of how the New Testament fulfilled and connected the Old Testament revelation and reveals the mystery of Christ. And again, we're going to come back to these men. But for now, I think we should be drawn to their teaching about the gospel, which is demonstrated in the last half of this verse as Paul continues his architectural illustration. Christ Jesus himself being the corner or the cornerstone. Now, if you've been to Israel, you've probably heard from different guides. There's a debate on what a cornerstone is. I've heard from two very reliable sources that cornerstone is in the foundation of a building and it's the first stone you lay at the corner that has exact angles that make sure that the rest is true. I've also heard some people say that a cornerstone was used at the top of an arch. It's the perfectly designed wedge that keeps the arch from falling. Both have been used in ancient literature of, of, um, of those two structures. I think here, though, the context would lead us to believe that he's talking about the floor, the foundation, the, the, the right angle right there that starts at the very beginning. Cornerstone was laid first in a foundation, and the most important part of any ancient building, and still the most important part of any building today. If the position of that first stone is not right, the rest of the foundation and the building itself will be askew. If the angles on the cut of that first stone are not precise, the rest of the foundation and the building will be askew. Look at what Paul's saying here. God's building a building. And Paul shows that we comprise part of this building, but the very first part was Jesus, the text is explicit, himself as the corner starting stone. Now, we don't have time for this right now, but just as a, as a little aside, it's interesting that God had us read Psalm 118 this morning. I don't know if you remember that. Because Psalm 118 talks about 
the cornerstone being rejected. Peter picks that up in 1 Peter chapter 2, 7. And I love, uh, my friend Mike Walgie will love this because I love the King James translation of this passage. The New American Standard says, this precious value then is for you who believe. A better translation is, for those who believe, he is precious. And then it says, but for those who disbelieve, and he quotes Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Oh, the theology there. They rejected Jesus on the cross. They rejected him at his trials. They still reject him. And God uses the one who is rejected by so many as the cornerstone foundation of the entire Christian faith. This is incredible because don't miss the solidarity. Jesus is the first cornerstone of this building and we are the other stones integrated with him on top of him, on top of the foundation about him. Which brings us to our second little part of divine habitation. Believers are fitted together for purposeful growth. This is wonderful and graphic. In whom Christ, the cornerstone, in him, in whom the whole building being puzzled or fitted together is growing into a holy temple in him, in the Lord. Paul pictures each believer as a stone in this massive temple complex. You comprise a valuable, important part as a stone in this dwelling of God. All of you. And God uniquely fits us together as he sees fit for his own dwelling. This fitted together, though, is really interesting. Several years ago, I was uh, invited over to a friend's house. He was building a house. Uh, he had a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot more money than I did. And he was involved in every single decision in his house. He's one of those guys. If you're a builder, you don't like those people, but this was that guy. And uh, we, we were out to lunch. He says, I want to take you by and see the house. Sure. When I walked into the house that day, they, there were two guys, one, one guy and one helper, working on the fireplace. Uh, and it was made of, uh, I don't know what it's called, uh, river rock, uh, creek, creek rocks. They were all, there was a big pile of them. A big pile of, I would have pushed that off in the quarry and just walked away. It was just a big pile of rocks. And he was about a third of the way up. And it was beautiful. And it would take him anywhere from 10 to 60 minutes. He would place a stone and then he would pick up this one. That, does that fit? Does that fit? Does that fit this way or that way? No. And he would do another one and another one and another one and another one and over and over. And his patience was compelling. I went after he finished the fireplace. It was stunning. But you know why it was stunning to me? You would have looked at it and said, pretty fireplace. It was stunning to me because I saw he took misfit stones and made them into this beautiful fireplace. That's the word here. 
He fitted us together. You're all misfits. I'm a misfit. We are. That's just sinners saved by grace. God takes each of us alongside each other in the Mission Road Bible Church with our local bodies, and he perfectly sets us so that we become a sturdy and a glorious and a beautiful facade of a building. It's beautiful. He uniquely fits us together. Being, and I love this, fitted together. No one stands on their own. He was just making a fireplace. Look at this. And it's growing. Every time someone gets saved, God perfectly has a place for them in his building. It's growing into, look at a holy temple in the Lord. Incredible language. We fit as misfits with each other in perfect fitting. Meaning, there are really no misfits in Christ's kingdom. We are fitted together with a purpose. He, God didn't have to try 10 minutes to an hour on every one of the stones. He created you to perfectly fit, not in just the body of Christ, but let me be specific, in this body of Christ, with the people around you. But we need to take a brief detour here talking about we're the temple of the Lord and we're the dwelling of the Lord. And I'll try to be brief on this. The idea that the church is the new temple of God is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied doctrines in the church. And there's a reason for that. And it's based on a common misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Would you go over there just for a moment? I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to have to learn a little Greek grammar today as compared to English grammar today because the English grammar is, it can't carry the weight of of the Greek on this. And let me explain to you what what I mean. The, The second person plural and the second person singular pronoun are the same in English. You. If I said, you can all come over for lunch today, and you can't, but if I said that, um, uh, you can come. Um, you can all come over for lunch today. That, that, that could go for all of you. But if I looked at Aaron and I said, you can come over, it's, it sounds the same. You understand that you, plural, and you, singular, are identical in English. They're not in Greek. In fact, being from Tennessee, we had it right when we said, y'all. So I'm not being cute or I'm not being funny, but I'm going to use y'all for the plural and you for the singular. And I think that will help you know what Paul's saying. Look back at, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies, plural, are members of Christ? Your singular bodies, all of each of your body, 1 Corinthians 12, we're all fitted. Some are eyes, some are ears, some are noses, some are feet. We're all members of the body of Christ. So, then shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's talking about uh, intimacy here and uh, prostitution may it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is the one is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside his body, the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, he's talking about personal physical bodies there. 
but he changes in verse 19. And please pardon my southern, but I'm going to introduce you to some y'alls, okay? Do you, y'all, plural, do y'all not know that y'all's singular body, all of y'all's singular body, Earlier, we're talking about bodies, personal bodies. Now we're talking about one body. Y'all's body, the body of Christ, is a temple, singular, of the Holy Spirit, who is in y'all, plural, whom y'all, you're plural, have from God, and that y'all are not y'all's own. Isn't it good to be from the South? <laughs> For y'all plural, have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in y'all's singular body. So what are you saying? I know how we like to say that your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And there are truths to that but not from this passage. (laughs) At face value, most people take the statement, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit as an individualistic idea. It's not. I just read it to you. The all of the you's in verse 19 and 20 are, are plural. And the temple and the body is singular. What is he saying here? Our local church community comprises common citizenship with each other, being part of the same family, being same bricks, being common bricks and adjacent bricks mortared together as different parts of the same body. But our the temple of the Holy Spirit in this passage is the church. Now I know what you're saying. Yeah, but what I mean, what about God's presence? And what is it? Uh, it's better than you think. In fact, to say that your body is a temple of Holy, your Holy Spirit is two thirds wrong, only a third right. John chapter 14. You can listen or you can look here. John 14, verse 16. It's better than being a, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's way better than that. John, Jesus says at the Last Supper, I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, that He may be with you forever. There's the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit of God. What a promise. So yes, the Holy Spirit indwells you forever. He dwells with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Clear as a bell. So the idea that, you, that the Holy Spirit resides with you and in you is, is, is a biblical term, just not from 1 Corinthians 6. But then he says, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Whoa, whoa. Permanent abiding presence of the Spirit and permanent abiding presence of the resurrected Savior. Then down in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. (laughs) Listen, my father will love him and we, Jesus says, my father will love him and we, my father and me will come and make our abode with 
him. So if you want to say it really, really accurately, you're not a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple of the Trinity. Whole Trinity resides with you permanently. Incredible. So yes, your body matters. And yes, the permanent abiding presence of God is with you. But Paul's point is that he resides in the church as the temple. I don't want to de-emphasize the presence of God with us or the Holy Spirit with us. What Paul's doing here is emphasizing the corporate nature of us growing into the temple of the Lord together as a church. Think of this. What is the temple for? What was it for? A place to come and experience the presence of God. That's what our church is to be. A place for worship. That's what our church is to be, like the temple. A place for the sacrifice and celebration of God's provision to forgive sin. They sacrificed animals there. We talk about the sacrifice of the Lamb of God here. A place to enjoy others with the same worshipful desires. We do that in the church and a place for instruction, correction, and study. And that's what we do in the church. We do together what the temple's intentions were to do because he dwells with us, which leads us Thirdly, to believers are assembled to function as God's dwelling. There's, I'm going to brief, be brief on this because it's just too wonderful to even describe. I don't even know how to, how to describe this. In whom, Christ, you also are being built together. We've, we've already seen that. That's just review. You've been in Christ. He's the cornerstone. You, you're laid alongside him. You're laid on top of him as foundation. You're being built, to get, built together with others. Into what? Into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Back to our title. Church is life not at God's residence, but it's life as, it's us, God's residence. Paul tells us here, we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit fitting us together with each other so that the presence of God is known in our church body, and to the world. We're all one together. Chapter 2, verse 14, both groups are into one. Chapter 2, 16, both in one body. Chapter 2, verse 18, both have our access to the Father. Jew and Gentile, anybody who's different background. And then the word together. We're alive together in verse 5. We're raised up together in verse 6. We're fitted together in verse 21. And we're built together in verse 22. So what are the implications of this? Well, we could spend the rest of the afternoon describing and discussing these, but I walked away with at least four. First, our church, Mission Road Bible Church, is to display the glory of God to the world like the temple did. We are the same function as what the temple was. It was the place people looked for God's presence, God's identity, God's instruction, God's worship, the understanding of the forgiveness of sins and God's sacrifice. That's who we are. Secondly, our church, it's just incredible to say, our church is the dwelling of God on this planet and in our community. (laughs) Our church is the dwelling of God on this planet and in our community. Here's a thought, and I'm not being trite or silly. 
If I asked you, what's God's address? Would you be willing to say 7820 Mission Road? Paul would. Paul would. It's not that God lives here and we come and meet him. He sleeps here and it's spooky when you come in here at night. No, 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 no. When we gather, we all have the permanent abiding presence of the Godhead and we gather, God dwells with us. Which thirdly makes what we do and who we are matter. What we do and who we are matters to God and one another. We're fitted together. We're the dwelling of God. He permanently abides with us. He permanently abides among us. This is important stuff. It has implications that chapters 4 to 6 will explain. And I love this. Ready for this? This is for you. This is for you. This is especially for me. Ready? God has put our church together with his design. There are no misfits. You have been fitted together with the people around you. So I know what it's like. You're like, oh, I don't really like that person. We don't get along, whatever. And God's, I think, smiling and saying, but I want you to. I want you to exist together. That's going to be good for your soul and good for your sanctification and good for your service and good for your imitation of me because I chose you and you weren't so attractive yourself. There are no misfits. God has put us exactly where he wants us to be with each other. What a God. What a God. If you study Ephesians well, you're going to love the church and you're going to love your church, warts and all, knowing that you and I are warts ourselves. I trust that you lean into loving one another and if if you want to know how to be a part of the Isle of Misfit Toys, you can come to our prayer room in a minute. We would love to let you join being fitted together in a glorious temple that is the dwelling of God.